1: Justine Willis-Toms. Today, I'm hosting Lupa. She is a neo-shaman artist and sustainability geek, and she is the author of many books, including Nature's Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Totems in Your Ecosystem. Lupa, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. So... Tell me, what are totems and how can they empower our lives?
2: Totems are archetypal beings that embody all of the given qualities of a particular species. So natural history, mythology, everything about, for example, gray wolves goes into the totem gray wolf. They're wonderful intermediaries between us and the rest of nature. And so they can help us recreate our
1: connection to the world around us. What is your suggestion and how we connect with this totem? How do we find it? How do we know it's a totem for us? Some people just intuitively know their totems. If If you
2: don't, there are a number of methods. My favorite is guided meditation because it gives you a mental structure in which you can go to a spiritual place in your mind to meet with that totem. Speak with them. Find out whether they are there to guide you. And then you can always go back to that place in your meditations to visit with them
1: again. I know that you suggest that we get to know our bioregion or our watershed. We, We get to know it really well. And I would imagine in getting to know the region, whether we find out more about it from books or whether we actually go out in nature... We might be surprised at what totem might come to us. Do you find that's true? Yes. We often think of totems as only being the big impressive
2: animals like wolf and bear and eagle and all that. But every single species and all of the natural phenomena have their own totems. And they all have power. They all have something to teach. And they all have something to bring to the totemic ecosystem. So you may think your totem is supposed to be brown bear, but in actuality... It's some kind of moss, and you have to make the time to explore that relationship and find out why that particular moss has decided to work with you.
1: So, if in your meditation you you get a a moss coming to you, you're saying, "Do not be disappointed. <laughs> it, it may seem lowly, or but it's rich in some ways." Uh, describe like. What you might find out if moss comes to you as an example. Well, every single species
2: has evolved its own techniques for surviving in the world and meeting the same challenges that we all have. Nutrition, water, shelter, and reproduction. Mosses are incredibly an ancient family. And they've been around for much longer than mammals have. And it's really important to explore how these plants have made their place in the world versus ours, because some of the techniques they've come up with are things we couldn't even do, like photosynthesis. So take them at their own value rather than applying your own biases to them.
1: So like in in moss, what is one of the benefits that they bring to the ecosystem? Well, they are a very
2: effective keeper of little bits of sunlight. Big trees are trying to get their branches out so they can get as much sunlight as possible. The mosses specialize in doing a lot with very little. So they get just the tiniest little bit of sunlight that makes it to the forest floor, and they make it work for them. And we can learn a lot
1: about doing a lot with a little from them. That's a great image. So if we're out in our ecosystem, what is your advice about walking through, let's say, a a forest or a a non-urban setting? Take it as slow as you can and pay
2: attention to all the different levels. Think back to, for example, your elementary and high school biology classes. Think about geology. Think about the climate and the weather patterns. Think about literally, that's why I call it nature spirituality from the ground up, because you're starting with the rocks and the soil and building upon that to get the entire ecosystem.
1: And that can take time. And I know that you encourage us to understand the soil that is part of our ecosystem. We don't often think about soil, but it's so important in our our entire living system. So how can we get to know our soil better? Well, a good start is just digging down into it
2: and seeing what's in there. My own garden at home, I dug out a cubic foot of soil when I first got it, and found 57 earthworms in a cubic foot, and it's gotten even more populated. That's pretty good soil, and I can do more research. I can have the soil tested to figure out what kind of minerals are in there. I can talk to local mycologists about what sort of fungi might be living in the soil. One little teaspoon of soil is thriving with life,
1: and you can make years of study just figuring out what's in that little teaspoon. And soil can be sandy or clay or, you know, what's the importance of knowing whether it's sandy or clay? Well, different things live in different
2: types of soil. Some microbes need a wetter soil. Many plants and fungi need more moisture while others are better adapted to drier soils. So by knowing what the soil can carry water-wise and nutrient-wise based on what it's composed of, you can also get a pretty good idea of what other living beings are living in and on that soil.
1: You know, I'm I'm remember seeing advertisements uh, where all terrain vehicles are just racing across a desert floor, and what I understand about desert is that it takes centuries for this crust to form, and that crust now I'm talking about soil now, that crust then conserves any moisture that that uh, that comes into that desert. And when these all-terrain vehicles start running through this landscape, they crush that crust. They it it, start, it, it disintegrates under their wheels, and it just may, I'm just aghast at at what what we do. Even when we walk across it, we are we are destroying centuries of buildup of something that is ecologically beneficial to that particular place. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about that?
2: Well, you've basically described one of the main reasons I don't go to Burning Man, because it's thousands upon thousands of people in a fragile desert ecosystem. I don't see a problem with a few humans walking across a desert because there are other living beings of our size in most desert terrains. However, they're few and far between compared to, for example, a forest. We don't want to completely separate ourselves from natural places for fear of damaging them. But we do want to be intelligent and mindful of the scale of our individual
1: impact. True enough. So what are some of the things that we might watch out for to to understand what kind of impact we're having? Well, one of the best
2: practices I've found on an individual level is in backpacking. There's a concept known as leave no trace And that means you don't leave trash, you don't damage the landscape. Some people even take their waste materials out with them. And it's just being aware of how the landscape changed by your being there. On a larger level, we need to look at how many people visit a given ecosystem, for example, a national park. And there are people, there are scientists who specifically look at the long-term effects of all those people visiting that one place at a time. There are some places like parks and so forth that get enough traffic that they're just they're never going back to their natural their original state just because of the the high impact. What we do need to do is keep protecting the wilderness places that are more pristine and be mindful of how we treat them And do our best not to do more damage to the ones we've already done a serious amount of hurt to.
1: Well, I I know that like in the wilderness places, there are some people that advocate that humans never enter them because of like one of the artifacts of humans is that crows and jays, blue jays, started a symbiotic relationship with Humans, mm-hmm. and they know to follow humans because they will discard something, and and they've just learned to to live with humans. So, if humans go out into a wilderness area, they might bring with them these what you would call invasive species into the wilderness, and there may be some fragile. Creatures that live there that have no protection against, let's say, jays or or crows. And that's a really tough situation to look at because
2: the more removed we feel from a place, the harder it is to feel the desire to protect it. People who go into the backcountry are some of the staunchest defenders of those places because they know what's at stake. And so... Yes, we need to be mindful of unintended consequences, like teaching the wildlife that we are sources of food and then encouraging them, unfortunately, to migrate to follow us. At the same time, if we completely avoid these places, one, we don't get to appreciate them and bring that appreciation back, and two, we don't know what sort of long-distance effects we may be having. There's pollution... In some of the most remote areas because of the air pollution that's spread around the entire planet. So we need to be able to get in there at least to measure that and see what's going on.
1: I remember Edward Abbey said years ago he thought that we should have no-fly zones even in some of these wilderness areas, which became kind of extreme. But, you know, it is something to think about. Well, there's a fabulous book. I cannot for the life of me remember the author because I'm
2: terrible with names, but it's called One Square Inch of Silence it came out a few years ago, and it's basically this man who, he he makes his living making nature recordings. And whenever you have any kind of man-made sound in the background, whether that's distant traffic or planes or people, whatever, and it, you'd be amazed what, how far off it can get picked up, um, that ruins the recording. So he went on a quest to find one square inch of silence somewhere in the United States, and he had to go all the way into the Ho rainforest on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington to find a place that was completely quiet. And so he took a stone cube that was one inch by one inch and put it on a stump there, and it's sort of become this shrine to silence because there are no plane flights that go over there. It's far enough away from traffic that doesn't pick things up, and it's so remote that you don't get very
1: many people there. How interesting So is there anything that you can leave us with, Lupa, that would help us to find our totem and to reconnect with the natural world?
2: Well, finding your totem is a really long process. Um, As I said, some people know them by, by intuition, but others don't. And it can take a while to verify whether a being is your totem. As far as the reconnection goes, though, go outside if you're able to. You know, obviously it's, it depends on your mobility and your financial situation, how much you're able to travel and so forth, how safe your neighborhood is. But if you can get outside, even if you're just going to a little median strip of grass or a little park or, you know, a tree outside, start making that connection. Wander around your neighborhood and notice the non-human beings there. And you might find as you're doing that exploration that somebody speaks to you that some plant or animal or fungus really kind of jumps out at you on a spiritual level, and
1: they make your acquaintance. Well, Lupa, I just want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. As have I. I've been speaking with Lupa. She is the author of Nature, Spirituality from the Ground Up. Connect with Totems in Your ecosystem. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, thegreenwolf.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe. Please do join us again.
0: You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe.